Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Violin Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Mugala, where we interview violinists from around the world. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you haven't done so already, please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out. It helps us out to create more great interviews for you. Or if you prefer to be on our mailing list, please go to violinpodcast.com and sign up for our mailing list. We don't spam you. I actually am the person who sends out the emails, believe it or not. And we only send out emails when we have important announcements or when new episodes come out on a biweekly basis. So please make sure to go to violinpodcast.com, sign up for our mailing list so that way you are in the loop what and what's going on in our Violin Podcast community. And if you're a frequent listener of the Violin Podcast, it would mean the world to us if you rated us either on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or on a podcast platform of your choice. It helps the ratings and it helps us be uh, more um, optimized for search engines so that way people like you can listen to this amazing podcast and to listen to these amazing interviews by world-class violinists. We want to make sure that the Violin Podcast is really a community. So I have created some violin tutorials on the YouTube channel so that way if you have any questions, comments, or concerns regarding how you play the violin, especially if you're a beginner, because we do have a lot of beginners on the violin podcast who are listening to the violin podcast, I should say, who are looking for like little details, looking for little tips and tricks for playing the violin. Well, I got news for you. On my on my YouTube channel, I have plenty of violin tutorials, um, and I'm going to link the YouTube videos and the YouTube playlist down in the podcast notes below. So make sure you click on that, subscribe to the channel, and I hope you'll get very useful stuff in regards to violin playing, violin tips, violin news, and my own personal opinions about what's going on in the violin world today. What's great about the violin podcast and what gives me pleasure to host a violin podcast is that I get to host and speak to amazing world-class musicians and today's guest is no different my guest today is a former concertmaster of the metropolitan opera and is the current concertmaster of the buffalo philharmonic orchestra and i want to introduce you to my guest nikki Choi. nikki and i we go in depth to talking about different kinds of violins different kinds of bows um, what's the role of a concertmaster especially in the buffalo philharmonic during uh, the covid19 pandemic and how they were able to adjust to the times so check out this very interesting interview, and I hope you enjoy. Nikki, it's such a pleasure to meet you. And as you just said, you're in you're out west in British Columbia, right? So what, yeah. what are you there out for vacation? Are you doing any performances or collaborations or whatnot? What what, what are you doing out there? I'm here with some some family, and you know, after uh, COVID and all that, this past year and a half, it's it's nice to be able to, tra- to travel again. So yeah. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to all the performances that we're going to be performing, obviously. Um, so I would love to we have a busy schedule today because I want to talk to you a lot of, about a lot of things, about your violin playing, about your approach to the violin. You know, uh, you know, a lot of the listeners on the violin podcast often come because they're craving 
practice tips and they're craving they're you know they're craving good violin content but i want i want to get to know how you, you started with your upbringing in the violin because i know that you and your brother are both violinists so was there like a very healthy camaraderie um while while growing up uh, between the two of you yes i mean it's it's actually quite special to be able to to have a sibling that's basically going through you know the the same path um you're going and um you know uh my brother and i were about five years apart and obviously i started the violin first and he followed um and so forth and you know we've been throughout our <clears throat> throughout our throughout throughout our childhood we've always been so supportive of each other uh we play a lot together you know um back in the suzuki days we played you know a bunch of suzuki duets you know like the uh book three the, cl- book the classics uh, the classics the classics <laughs> totally and um and i think we combined uh, joined forces again um at my uh, curtis graduation recital t- 2012 and that was the first time we played together as you know as uh, more i guess mature students more mature adults and that was the prokofiev violin sonata for two violins <clears throat> which is and... a beast of a piece it piece. is, and it's, it's a piece but it's, of a piece. It's a, an amazing piece, though, and yes, and since then we've been collaborating with different projects. We've had a few commissioned works for us. We have a concerto that was written for us by Sheridan Seyfried, um, <clears throat> a two solo violin piece by Daniel Temkin, and we've been we've been traveling a lot together as well since then. Well, that's awesome. I, I, I'm looking forward to, you know, learning more about your upcoming performance schedule. You know, right now I'm based in Massachusetts. So if I'm nearby any major concert hall, and if you're performing, I want to try making it to uh, one of your performances, of course. But um, I want to talk about, you know, the violin with you because you are a violinist. You're also the concert master of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. And you... We actually had uh, David Kim, the concertmaster of Philadelphia Orchestra, on the on season one of the Violin Podcast, and he has uh, such a lot of great uh, information regarding the role of a concertmaster. But I'm curious to know what your take um, of the position is. Like, what are, what are some things that you do to approach this um, this massive, gargantuan role in an orchestra? Sure, sure. So obviously, you know, the uh, sitting on that chair, you're you're um, leading the fellow, my my fellow first violins, you know, at the back, and and you know, bowings and gestures, and towards the other string principles as well. You know, I kind of hone my senses to the middle. You know, where the you know, obviously I I get my cues and gestures from the conductor, and kind of hone the energy to the middle of the uh, to the middle of the orchestras where the principles kind of um have their sensors you know to pay attention to each other and and obviously the bass you know it's always very important you know they sometimes lead the timings and if anything so i have a good uh communicating um signal with with my principal bass dan dan penley and you know it's, it's more like um i guess uh it's such a common term we we express you know the role of a concertmaster we're we're a liaison to to the rest of the orchestra to kind of uh, interpret what the conductor um, gives physically and we interpret it to a musical technical and more practical approach to to share with the rest of the orchestra yeah 
Yeah, what's what's it like working with uh, Joan Folletta and I and uh, Mr. Dunn? You know, um, they're they're fantastic conductors in their own right. I believe back in 2010, I was attending the Interlochen Music Festival, as a lot of the listeners know. And actually, I remember Joan Folletta was conducting Rimsky Korsakov Scheherazade, yeah. and uh, that was the last time I ever played under her baton, and it was a very very wonderful experience. So, what's it like working with them? So Joanne Folletta is such a warm and generous person and it really shows in her musicianship, her approach to, to music and how she communicates with people as well. She, she's been such a pleasure to work with um, since I arrived in Buffalo and especially, you know, through the last year and a half or so, you know, through the pandemic. I've gotten to work with her even more because we've been um, we've been fortunate to be able to record uh, live streams um, for our community and such and and just getting to work with her in such a close uh, knit uh, basis that was that was really that was really great and working with um, you know Jamon Dunn it was it's, it's it's he's such he's got such energy it's it's really fun to you know just be a part of his aura and he just gives the orchestra such inspiration and motivation it's he's, he's awesome so did you get the position of the concertmaster right before the pandemic? How long ago did you become the concertmaster? Yeah, good question. So um, I started in October 2019. So it's literally, what? Months six before. Months, six months before. And I remember um, we were recording the, uh, the, this, this for, uh, the disc of Florence Schmidt, works by Florence Schmidt. And I had a little solo uh, called Legend. And um, that was supposed to be like our performance, uh, you know, run through of it. Then we have a, a recording session, but we ended we ended up using the rec the performance run through because um, before we could uh, have the the session, the the pandemic hit, and you know we're we're left with that. But you know it was it was it was um, crazy how everything just kind of rolled. I remember, you know, just you know this virus was this myth almost like you know on the on another side of the world and never thought it it affect us you know this closely and this um gravely as well how did the buffalo phil adapt to covid-19 i mean obviously a lot of orchestras they were able to you know do live streams you know you have new york phil la phil's you know chicago symphony doing like a lot of these um, you know, live streams and then digital concert hall by Berlinfeld has been around for many years. So what has the the BPO and, you know, Joanne Folletta and, and Jaman done, you know, do to involve the Buffalo community in these live streams? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've been fortunate to also um, keep our season throughout um, 2020 and 2021, just recording live streams um, you know, for a community and our supporters um, around the country, around the globe. And we've been, you know, there was a limit to how many players could be on stage or social distancing, uh, masks on as, as the usual, as per usual. Um, but we were also able to explore such great repertoire. You know, we started with, you know, a lot of the great string repertoire, like Tchaikovsky, um, Serenade, um, uh, 
some Greek Holberg suite and and so forth and then we slowly expanded to to you know more uh, you know included the winds I played Mozart fourth concerto I also solo with um, got the chance to play the four seasons Vivaldi four seasons as well so that was fun and then at the end you know we you know got to a point where you know we could include a lot more and we played um, a really fun uh, version of the Carmen uh, suite so including timpani and a lot of percussion so that was fun that's excellent yeah so yeah. speaking of the violin what violin do you currently play on and what kind of bow do you really play on and also i want to get into like the geeky stuff like what strings do you use <laughs> like do you have any like pre-performance rituals that you do i'm curious to know sure sure so i currently play on a joseph Curtin violin um, it was built for me in 2017 and I got to know his violin through a family friend um, and he's also a bow maker um, through Michael Van and he introduced me to Joseph Curtin's work and I actually um, had the chance to borrow uh, one of um, a curtain that was owned by Michael Mann and I used it for a couple of years. I really enjoyed it. You know, it was it was you know the the power, the the deepness to the to the lower strings. And one day I approached Curtin and was like, "Can you can you make me a violin? I I really love your instruments." And you know, it took a few tries. You know, several instruments that we sent back and forth and it finally came to this one and it's I think it's 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 really great you know I'm still exploring it today um, you know the high registers are it's it's pretty warm and and then the low registers it's very powerful so it's I'm very happy with it um, bow so I've been using the same bow um, since I was I think 11 or 12 years old it's uh, Stefan Thomas show it's a modern French bow and you know, I've gone through phases where I tried other bows, but I always came back to this one. And and I think the last few years, I just said, you know, I'm just staying with this one. And this something, um, you know, amazing comes 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 to my attention, and maybe I'll consider it. But but it's been working just fine for me these years. And were you gonna say something? Oh no, I just wanted to say that. Um... What was I gonna say? This is a, I guess this is a good part for me to edit out. I guess. <laughs> no, um, no, that's it's interesting that you play on a modern instrument because, I it, you don't it doesn't sound like a modern instrument. It sounds brilliant. Like based on the rec recent recordings that I've heard of you, um, it sounds. I don't know. It sound, you make it sound like a Strad. It's make, <laughs> you make it sound very good. So you know, kudos to you on that. And it's really special to have a violin bow that you've had for you know numerous years uh well you said you were had it since you were 11 yeah yeah something like that yeah, yeah. oh my gosh that's well, that's really I know, special totally. i mean you've you've built like a special bond to it like it's a part of you now right totally, totally. Yeah. the violin has been constantly changing you know i've played on Stras, guarneries uh guadagnini's and you know yeah the the, the thing that you, you say about you know um playing on modern instruments um I was fortunate to be able to have gotten loans from the Canada Council playing on uh, a Strat and a Del Jesu. And during those periods of borrowing those instruments, I learned what the, I learned to look for what sound it, it created, you know, and it was, it was such a pleasure to be able to play, you know, those great Italians, you know. 
but also the American makers are also pretty good. I play on an American maker right now and yeah. you know, the wonderful violins. Um, yeah. what kind of strings do you use? Do you, do you go with the, with the regular basic dominance or, or do you do like a combination of strings? What, what, what is, what is your take on that? So for the A, D, and G strings, I use Vision Solos. And that, uh, to me, uh, I, I've been experimenting a lot over the years. And that, to me, was the strain that gave me a lot of power and warmth and projection. Um, for the E string, I've been rotating, you know, in and out. I've used Perastro Gold E string. Um, uh, just tried a few titaniums, gold-plated stuff, and you know it's still a work in process because I I'm still trying to look for, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess for me the eastern squeaks a lot, so I just need to depending on the humidity, the the climate, and stuff like that. Oh, so that's the worst. Rotating. Yeah, <laughs> that's the worst, man. Like when I yeah. when I when in Massachusetts, it's it, there's a running joke in Massachusetts that like. You know, one day is like in the 90s and then the second day after is like in the 50s. And it's just like the weather is so inconsistent. So um, we actually had uh, Douglas Cox on the violin podcast, who is a violin maker based in um, Brattleboro, Vermont. And he talks about as long as you have consistency, you know, like the change in consistency with the with the temperature and the weather, then you're all fine. But yeah. I, I can imagine that when you're playing on the Strad, the Del Jesu and the Guaranini, I'm sure you had to battle with the with the with the temperature changes and the humidity oh, yeah. changes do you find that to be the case with your uh modern instrument right now or no i would say the modern instrument is um quite a bit more stable in that way just because i don't know to me it, it was it was built in in this continent you know like it, it kind of knows <laughs> um, right it knows the climate or it's not as it's not as moody as the exactly Italians. and yeah. uh i remember when i had the seventh 1929 Del Jesu that Timmy actually played uh, right after I had the use of it. Um, that one was very temperamental, you know, like every little slight change of humidity, climate, um, you you name it, you know, um, it, it you it it shows in the in the violin. Um, but then you know again when everything lines up, it's it's this amazing amazing uh, fiddle to play on. Yeah, there. When the stars are aligned, you know, <laughs> then like if you got the right amount of rosin on the bow hair, you got the right, like fresh strings, like after their you know breaking period, and then the right temperature, like everything just kind of clicks. Exactly. Yeah, I I find perfect. that to be like I find that to be like the perfect feeling, you know, like when all of a sudden, like all of a sudden, everything aligns, and then bam, you sound sound really really good at least i i believe i think i sound good but everybody thinks they sound good until they start recording themselves <laughs> um, <laughs> recording's another a whole another story <laughs> oh man well let's dive into that actually do yeah. you do you have any um recording projects on the horizon or can you talk about any previous projects that you've recorded uh within the last i don't know five years pre-pandemic sure sure yeah so um when I did the Michael, when I when I uh, won the Michael Hill uh, violin competition down in New Zealand, um, I got the chance to record my debut album with the Etel label, and that was fun. You know, like I recorded works by Prokofiev, Ravel, and Gershwin, and um, that was that, that was a project uh, done in I think twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen, something like that, and yeah, just. Um, Recording is such a 
almost like a different approach that we have to take. Um, you know, it's it's a uh, it's definitely not the same approach I take as with performing for a live audience. You know, it's it's almost a um, this like this lab work where you okay, okay you gotta get this you know good and then um, fill it with um, the same excitement the same interpretive you know um depth and you know just just give it your all and then you can you know like you know and cutting and pacing to me is a it's a it's a fantastic phenomenon you know it's I'm yeah still... command c yeah. command v <laughs> <laughs> right and i find it's so interesting that you brought that up because i find that you know i've played in multiple recording sessions not as a soloist but as an orchestra member as a string as a quartet or yeah. chamber ensemble member and what i find to be most difficult is that let's say we need to do a cut and yeah. we are playing i don't know 20 measures and then you end like on a on a, on a climactic moment and yeah. then you cut yeah. And then you take a break for 10 minutes and then you, everybody in the room has to be on the same energy that they were right before the break. Do yeah. you find that to be the case also? Totally, totally. It's, it's almost, um, in some ways, a little bit unnatural, but at the same time, that's just part of, part of this, um, this mindset of recording, you know, like I, I, I did a recording once, um, I was in the orchestra, you know, with a singer and um, we didn't even play the whole piece. We literally went bar by bar, you know, like maybe two bars, and then, and then the the producer would say, uh, play with more um, excitement or play it more forte, play it with this this that, and then literally just cut, you know, over the, the course of I think it was six hours or so, and then oh gosh, <laughs> wow, yeah, that, that it could it could be also just an annoying process you know when you're when you're recording but you know at the end of the day once the people in the booth they know what they're doing and you know i have people who you know there's okay so measure 34 your way out of tune measure so and so could use more liveliness like okay you need to we just need to do the entire thing again let's just let's do another take it's almost it's very um you, you're put in a very vulnerable situation you know all your your work or your that hard practicing it's like it's so you know laser <laughs> focus you know everybody can say oh no that one's not good that's one's not. <laughs> and, the, and the recording gear that we have now is way better than than we had in like high fits days mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know the microphones are more detailed they capture your mistakes even more yeah. and the, i feel like because of that the the level of playing has gotten higher that level of intonation as high as a matter of fact you know when um when i when i met with timothy um in the berkshires i was actually doing a, a musical production and i had this really awesome colleague in this production who talks about you know intonation he's a percussionist but he talks about intonation <laughs> and he's like yeah like you know you look at all these you know these old timers the even though they were fantastic violins in their own right like they didn't have um, the ability to, you know, copy paste and like do multiple takes because we were doing digital and a lot of that was analog. And um, yeah. I think it's a blessing and a curse that we can, you know, copy and edit and do auto tune and like adjust a pitch like right here. And I, <laughs> I find that to be uh, good, but like, at the end of the day, though, if you're doing too much of that, then I think you might want to revisit the piece and practice a little more in the practice room. <laughs> yeah, but... I feel like recording is like another 
another thing of its own, unless it's like a live take or something, you know. That's, uh, sure. So let's talk about um, some live performances and like, what are your favorite pieces to perform, or what are you, what are some pieces that you've grown up with that you kind of keep dear to your heart? Which yeah. ones? Which ones do you have in mind? Good question. Um, so in October, I'll be um, soloing with the Buffalo Phil on the Brahms Violin Concerto, and that is one of my favorite. Um, concertos for for the violin you know i i remember starting it <laughs> actually um i i remember listening to a recording of itzhak perlman and you know falling in love with with this piece and i took it to my teacher i was 10 years old and i was like i want to learn this you know i bought the you know the international edition already you know it was huge you know like you know back then at, at 10 years old my pieces were like two pages this was like what 16 17 you, right you, you you bought everything you bought like the bit the book yeah yeah back in the day yeah there were there was no imsop or not yet um but yeah i bought the 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 solo part and the piano part at that time and then i was like i want to learn this and my teacher was like you're 10 it's you need a few years you first of all like the longest piece you've played is you know about five ten minutes you know let's let's build up your stamina and all that so i waited till i was about uh, just turning 12 and he was like okay fine like let's pick a few uh sections to work on and kind of you know like over time maybe we can put it all together so i remember just working on just the first page for a few months you know and and that itself is very very demanding you know like all the arpeggios the the, the sound you have to make and the, the the different rhythms how it goes from you know like sextuplets to uh, 16th notes to triplets and then to eighth notes you know just just getting a sense of the the flow and all that so that was that was good you know like just just learning it and then eventually around 14 then i got to play the entire thing all three movements and I played it last with the Huntsville Symphony um, back in 2016 as soloist, and I'm, you know, that was such a great experience. I just loved the symphonic um, feeling of it, you know, just, just, you know, before, you know, obviously there's a great introduction and then this epic build up to the big, you know, open, you know, the D string where the violin enters. It's so exciting for me. I it's like it. epic beyond epic. Like, exactly it's just, yeah it's just incredible yeah <laughs> you, i think that's like the you know if you want to call it like uh you know one of those moments where you just love being a solo violinist that's the the opening you want to that describes it you know so yeah so i'll be <clears throat> playing that with um the buffalo philharmonic Brahms concerto and i'll be doing a couple um you know, with COVID and all that, just things are just slowly getting back and and I'll be actually playing with Timmy um, with the Manitoba Chamber Orchestra in February or February or March. Um, and we're going to have a little duo program playing Vivaldi concertos, uh, La Folia Gemignani, and I think we're do doing Brandenburg, uh, some Brandenburg um, concertos as well. And then a uh, couple recitals here and there, but yeah. Violin podcast listeners, you might have noticed something a little bit different, especially if you're on Spotify. What's really cool about today's episode is that we can finally incorporate polls 
in our Violin Podcast episodes. That's right. So now I can finally connect with the listeners of the Violin Podcast. And in today's poll, since we've been talking about, you know, old violins and modern violins, I want to know what kind of violin you play on. Do you play on a modern instrument or do you play on an old instrument? And if you're on Spotify, please contribute to the poll because I want to know your thoughts. And then I'm going to share the results in the next episode. So if you're not listening on Spotify, then, you know, what are you doing? Click out of your podcast app and go to Spotify apps, go to Spotify podcasts and do the poll. Very simple. All right. Now back to the episode. So obviously you have a very active life outside of orchestra. You're still soloing. You're still performing. Um, what really interested you in going this direction? Because, I mean, right, Timothy is, a, is doing the solo route and you're obviously in the concert master, but you're able to maintain that uh, the, these engagements outside of, you know, your, 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 you know, your steady job at the BPO. Um, was that was that a conscious decision with you uh, wanting to be an orchestral player, being a concert master, having that kind of leadership, or was that uh, uh, unconscious? What, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? So, I guess the orchestra route, the concert master route, kind of fell in its place. Um, you know, um, right after school, I was touring a lot, um, playing concertos, recitals, doing a lot of chamber music. And in 2015, I got an opportunity to join um, Time for Three, the the crossover or the multi-genre ensemble. They do. Crossover, crossover, classical. <laughs> crossover, <Yeah. laughs> they cross back and cross over again. You know, <laughs> they're they're you know it's they're a fun, unique, brilliant you know uh, couple of guys. And and I played, I toured with them for about a season and that was that was really fun you know we went to we went and played with the hong kong phil the the Bubek concerto and uh, went to barbados went uh the la jolla festival and that was it was brilliant really really great to be part of that and then i got an opportunity to sit as concert master of the metropolitan opera orchestra for a year and that was my first you know um my first position as as concert master in a professional setting and that was that was amazing you know just learning all those operas you know and being surrounded by some of the greatest voices in the world that was that was really special to be a part of and you know that that kind of gave me the the itch to just you know pursue this you know um as opposed to what i was doing before and and you know the buffalo philharmonic position uh opportunity came up and you know i i'm I, I'm I'm really fortunate to be able to be part of the BPO, but also the schedule is, allows me to pursue other projects. You know, like you know, teaching, um, soloing with other orchestras, chamber music projects with my brother, and stuff like that. So it's it's really a great balance of activities. I think balance was what I was striving for. Um, just because I love doing uh, many different things and many different things at, at a high level. So that's, that's, I, I, I'm really enjoying what I have right now. That's really cool. I, you know, you just mentioned that was, that was going to be one of my talking points with you is that you were first season, you know, the concert master of the Metropolitan mm-hmm. Orchestra, which is a huge job to be yeah. a part of, right? And uh, I'm so curious to know what, what you found, um, interesting about that position and what is the difference between 
being a concert master for an opera orchestra compared to a symphonic orchestra, if you can um, let our audience know what the similarities or the differences are, that would be awesome. Sure, sure. So, you know, f just from the get go, operas are long. Operas are very long. And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember when I played my first um, performance at the Met, it was uh, Don Giovanni Mozart, right? And it's, you know, it's a long opera, but it's was that, that you said that was your first one? That was my first one. Yeah. Oh man. What a, what a great first opera to be playing at the Met. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, no, I was very, very fortunate. Um, you know, it's on, on the longer side, but definitely not, you know, you know, Wagner, uh, length or anything, but I remember like, you know, just playing it and, you know, right after, um, in the middle of the first act, you know, just being gassed out. I was like, wow, <laughs> that was, that was a lot of playing. And, you know, that was only like, what, 30 minutes, 40 minutes in, or, you know, and maybe an hour in, and there's, there's still like two, two and a half hours to go. And I was like, wow, how do I do this? So I realized, you know, like over the course of the season there, I had to approach it like a marathon and to not give it your all, you know, you, you know, sometimes in, you know, my, my type of playing before, you know, whether it's a recital or a concerto, chamber music, you, you kind of live in that space, you know, you give it your all and that, and that's that. Um, but I realized um, quite soon into my time at the Met that I have to almost take a, a more um, reserved approach just to save my concentration, my focus, my energy um, for what's about to come and you know how long it is. So that that was that was that was a huge learning curve right at the beginning. Um, compare that to symphonic playing, you know, where, um, you know, now I look at, you know, like even like a Brahms symphony or even a Mozart symphony, let's say, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's so, it's so short compared in it's relative like tiny. to, exactly. Like so puny, that, like Mozart, exactly. people, people may not know though, Mozart was an, a, an opera composer, yep, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. So a lot of his music is very operatic, but, um, yeah. I find I find that with opera playing, and I, it's very important that the audience identifies this for all the beginner violins because we do have a lot of beginner violins listening to the violin mm -hmm. podcast. And it's it's important to know that it's not like a musical where you're playing and then you have a break. You're playing and you have a break. The the music in opera is like you're once you start, you're going like for thirty oh. minutes straight, and then you have yeah. multiple acts, and it takes a long time and. Yeah, yeah, you know, I wonder. I, the last time I was at the Met, it was it was um, I think about a couple of years ago actually, and it was, um, you know, I was thinking, I'm like, you know, like we we just play, they just play 45 minutes, and we have like a 25 minute break. I'm like, they must have really needed, <laughs> they really need those breaks in between. It's like, why are the breaks so long? Maybe that's why the operas are like three and a half to four hours long. It's because of the breaks that the musician no, but no, but they actually yeah, yeah. the musicians do need those breaks because it's yeah. it's tough work. Well, Honestly, some of the breaks, it's not even for, I guess, um, personnel reasons, but the set changes, you know, like the, the people with this, the people in charge with the sets, you know, sometimes these sets are massive and a lot of things go on um, changing them as well. So I guess with symphonies, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. There's a stage, musicians or conductor, you go up and you play. 
right yep. and then with a pit it's like okay you got to get the musicians and you got to get the production then the lighting and then making sure that the singers are singing and it's like a whole ordeal it's like you're totally. you know, it's like it's the, the, the uh, marathons of music essentially right yeah um, the, the opera is like a, a whole universe in itself you know it, it there's a lot of different factors that comes into play whereas um, symphonic work you know the musicians on stage are the forefront of the of the whole program that's it right yeah you mentioned mozart's don giovanni but i'm curious to know if there is like another memorable operatic experience that you had at the met yeah yeah so um the rosen cavalier strauss's rosen cavalier oh, that was so good that was amazing it was uh renee fleming's um last run of it and you know it was you know the music the the staging the the, just everything about it was was extremely memorable and i remember just you know i loved the you know i i, I before I, I played the opera version of it i played the suite you know which is the condensed symphonic version of it and loved the tunes loved you know how it you know it's full of emotion and romanticism and i i just love strauss's work in general and um to be able to play the entire you know the whole opera version which is you know just just massive you know with such um set changes um the cast was was what a pleasure yeah fantastic um now i want to dive into your practice habits and your practice techniques sure. i'm sure the audience is dying to know how does nikki chui practice <laughs> because because well, a lot you're, of you're speeding up a lot of excitement for this <laughs> yeah no no I'm, I'm i'm teasing of course but like you know yeah. I, I i love getting different perspectives because i'm also a teacher and a lot of my students listen to the podcast and i'm sure there are a lot of st students and teachers and you know all sorts of kind of people that listen to this podcast i'm like you know like what are what what kind of practice tips do these people use and i'm just curious to know like what are some things that works for you now you know because yeah. you've built so much uh you know you have so much on your resume and you've obviously been playing for such a long time what what kind of practice keeps you going and how do you practice and i'll i'll stop right there <laughs> sure, sure 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 so um you know back in the day i did you know all these scale systems like flash galami and i still revisit them once in a while but these days i tend to pick sections uh out of pieces whether it's a whether it's a part of a symphony or even some concertos for example the other day i was uh warming up warm, warming up with the last movement of the brahms concerto you know there's a lot of scales in there and just using that as a as a warming up tool so you kind of save time you know you're you're um, while you're warming up, you're basically pra practicing parts of the pieces as well. So that when you get to uh, actually, actually practice a piece, um, you don't have to worry too much about, about the technical aspects of it because you've already covered it during your warm-up session. So you work, I work more on the, the interpretive side and just getting everything to, to make sense musically and all that. Um, In some ways, it's actually very efficient what you're suggesting. You know, you're... Um, you know, some teachers would argue like, okay, you need to be practicing scales and then you go to the repertoire. But you're saying, yeah, I practice my, I practice my piece right away. I mean, I'm, you're not, you're not playing it. You're not, you're not taking out your, your violin and then playing it fast though. No, right? no, no. Yeah. I, I do. I, I approach it as, 
playing skills. You know, I play rhythms. I play, I play it in rhythms. I play it. Play. You know, have the tuner on. You know, just just um, with the drone and all that. Just making sure the intonation's nice and solid. Um, for example, the Beethoven Violin Concerto. It's all scales, right? It's basically a D major scale. The entire story scale. of my life. <laughs> the Beethoven Violin Concerto. And it covers a lot. You know, the beginning. You got. You get to practice your octaves. You get to practice uh, broken thirds. You get to practice dominant seven chords, right? And and so forth. So um, these days, I'm. You know, I would say since co. Um, yeah, the last couple of years, um, I've been approaching uh, my practice that way and once in a while i visit you know septic exercises the, the, i i think septic exercises are great by the way just to get the shifting um really nice and comfortable and i do still practice you know glamian skills once once a while maybe uh, i spend a couple days a month doing that so yeah it was very you know you're you're reminding me of uh, a very interesting encounter i had with joey silverstein who was mm -hmm. uh, a former concert master of the boston symphony and he was a former music director of utah symphony and um, i had a lesson with him back in my time in boston in school so what what reminded me of what you were what you were saying is uh, an encounter i had with joey silverstein who was the former concert master of the boston symphony and the uh, former music director of the Utah Symphony. And I had a lesson with him once when in my, in my time in Boston. And, you know, I was I was leaving my lesson and there was another lesson. Actually, he had a, a bit of time after my lesson. Mm -hmm. And all he did, like he was maybe at this point, like early 80s, early to mid 80s. And he was just like playing scales. Like, you know, I still got to practice my skills. I got performance like in two weeks, you know? <laughs> and that kind of blew my mind because even at that, like that passion, of his it's like you know it, it really showed me a different perspective like if you love the process of practicing or if you love the process of like doing the behind the scenes work then everything will um will will kind of flow its way do you find that to be the same thing do you do you find passion in your practice do you find practice to be um a beautiful thing or a frustrating thing <laughs> sure sure that's a good question and i love that story about um joey silverstein he was my teacher at, at curtis i studied with him for four years there and oh wow uh, that's yeah what a privilege that must have been it it, it it was and i i remember him you know every day when i pick up the violin you know his his approach to to life music and all that and yes he does practice his scales and he goes through <laughs> two uh, sonatas or petitas um, a day uh, by Bach. Uh, he plays them through. He, he, that's just part of his routine. Um, but yeah, um, practicing. Um, for me, I love the, the word you mentioned, um, the process. I, I love the process. I love being, you know, part of the, the grind, the hard work, the I guess just figure thing, figuring things out to make it easier, to make it, you know, make more sense, to, to you know, the puzzling, the, the solving the puzzle part of it. And, you know, to, to me, it's a, it's a lifelong process. It's not, um, there are points where, you know, there are goals where, let's say it's a performance, an audition, or whatever it can be, you know, but the process is between the start of it to those points, but it also moves beyond that as well. You know, it's just, you know, something we as musicians, it's, it's what a privilege to, 
to be doing because it's a lifelong commitment, it's a lifelong process, and just you know, it's just the art of finding perfection. You know, it's it's never gonna be perfect, but it's, you know, you strive towards that, and it gets you know the every little step of improvement is what it's all about. Oh, you're on mute. Thank you. Yeah. I'm curious to know what your favorite Joey Silverstein story is, because I mean, I've only seen him in master classes. I've only had like one lesson, but you have had, you had a relationship with him. So I'm curious to know yeah. if there was like any memorable stories that you can recall from your time. Yeah. At Curtis. Sure. 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 Um, I would say it's not necessarily a story, but just, just something he always told me. He's like, you know, when he started at the Boston Symphony, he started at the, the back of the second violins, you know, and then um, through that, he got to observe a lot of the the way people play just because he was, you know, at the very back, you could, you could see everything as opposed to being at the front where you're more, you know, um, you know, yeah. Um, but and then he slowly kind of moved up in his uh, in his years there, you know, and got to rotate uh, between um, all the other chairs. And he said that really helped him gain insight on how people play and how the symphonic, the, the sound of the symphony, you know, this, especially the string section and all that. And and then when he was uh, appointed as concert master, um, then he had this sound that he was looking for what he, he he knew what 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 he was looking for when he when he finally sat at the chair so that was something he just kind of you know told me and shared with me um through my years there which i found really interesting because he really went step by step it wasn't like you know boom he uh, kind of learned the job on the spot so yeah and I'm sure, I mean, he has, he is like, he was a wealth of knowledge, right? And then to apply all of that knowledge as a, as an educator and as a teacher, man, what a, what an amazing, totally, um, yeah. yeah, what yeah. an amazing time. But I know that I'm, you know, I'm keeping you over a little bit, but I just have one more question. And I ask this to every um, guest that comes on the violin podcast, you know, there are some people who are on the fence about ever either starting a music career or playing the violin or they think it's too hard or they're afraid of being judged or you know whatever the case may be i'm just making stuff up here but um what what are your thoughts about anyone looking to start the violin what can you say to that person to the listener who is on the fence about starting the violin or introducing some kind of music education in their lives i would say approach it with an open mind and to really, you know, just approach it in a way that, you know, if, if it really speaks to you, if it's something that you enjoy doing, you like the process of it, if, you know, if it's all right, you know, if, it, if it, that's what you believe in. And if you check all those boxes, I would say, you know, that's, that's great you know like what are steps towards a career because that's another conversation to to talk about right uh, sometimes um at least for for me growing up like i enjoyed what i do and you know the the, the career aspect of it kind of rolled as we go but i feel like you know it's it's very helpful to think about these things beforehand you know before you pursue it and 
Yeah, I would, I would definitely, you know, if it's your passion, if it's something that really enjoy doing and it speaks to you and you feel like you are able to, you see yourself commit to a long, commit to this for a long time, then, you know, go for it. And to the listener who is a conservatory student, yeah, what would you say to that person who's listening? To to pursue a well, career. to uh, for a current conservatory student yeah. who is actually pursuing a, a career in music, yeah. you know, right now, uh, you know, during the pandemic, and people are, you know, these students are in school, they're studying music, and you know, <laughs> we're on red alert for concert halls and. Symphonies, you know, closing down and artist management companies completely, you know, disintegrating. You know, yeah. what would you say to the to the student, to the conservatory student who's actually studying music to become what you're saying? You know, having a fulfilling music career. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like this pandemic has kind of brought out a lot of innovative ideas, and you know, sure, like. You know the the solo path, chamber music, orchestra is you know are the staples of what uh, we have as options, um, especially for violinists um, in terms of career. But I would say you know be open to other ways of making communicating your music to to audi- to the audience, whether it's through um, digital content to 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 making videos to live streams um, the. The possibilities are endless, and you know, as we've all seen over the last year and a half, so many people all over the world, so many musicians, instrumentalists, have come up with amazing ideas, and and even this podcast, you know, this is amazing that you're. Oh you're, well. You're... <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, to be honest, like the, this this podcast was a result of the pandemic because I feel like there were a lot of people who needed a resource and there there wasn't one called the Violin Podcast. So I figured I'd be the first one. There we go. Like that's a perfect example. So, you know, just use your imagination, you know, the the usual path is always there, but if you feel like you can come up with something more innovative, more more i guess fulfilling you know go for it you know and whatever that may be it's it's up to your imagination nikki it's such a pleasure to meet you in, um on on zoom and you know digitally but i hope i get to meet you in person and attend a live concert of yours hopefully per- maybe with you you and your brother that would be really awesome sure. but i love to um you know whenever we're in the same city or you know same continent uh, <laughs> sure. so, um, definitely would love to um you know meet up in person i'm glad i made a new friend today um and for everybody who has listened to our you know our banter to the end um thank you for listening to the end of the violin podcast episode i really really appreciate it and if you haven't done so already please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out it really helps me out as uh, you know, the creator of the Violent Podcast to provide more episodes for you, and please make sure to check out uh, you know Mr. Nikki Choi in the in the Buffalo area if you're ever around, and I'll also leave his links in the episode description below, so that way you get to know a little bit about Nikki and what he's up to. So Nikki, thanks again so much for your time, and I wish you uh, a nice vacation in British Columbia. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. It was a pleasure to speak with you this morning.
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Violin Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out. It really helps out the Violin Podcast to provide more episodes for you. Also, please make sure to hit a five-star rating if you enjoyed the episode and also leave a rating because we want to make sure we read those and also feature those on the Violin Podcast episodes in the future. Thanks so much, and we'll see you in the next one.